Welcome to another special episode of Writing Questions for my Writing for Engineers students. This time we interview a geological engineer and coal miner about his writing life. All right, in this episode, we're going to hear from an engineer who is responsible for maximizing the amount of coal taken from the mine and doing it in the most efficient way possible while maintaining the safety of all the workers involved. Okay, my name is Joe Brinton, and uh, I'm a geologist, a licensed professional geologist at a coal mine in Utah. And uh, so my role at the coal mine is, is to be in charge of the engineering services. And uh, again, I'm in charge of making sure all the engineering and geology is, is um, thought about well in advance so it doesn't surprise us later. So what's like an example of something that would come across your desk that you need to look at? Um, you know, I get everything coming across my desk. For example, today's, today's task, I, I dealt with water rights and, uh, and lawyers. We had a long conversation with lawyers dealing with the water rights associated with the water we use at the mine. And then later in the day, I dealt with drillers. We have a drilling company that's going to come drill some holes for us. And then uh, later in the day, uh, I have to deal with um, insurance bonds related to our mine reclamation. And so I was dealing with, with surety agents. Okay, so um, I'm imagining my students and I'm imagining hearing the things that you said came across your desk today. To me, those don't sound like engineering things. <laughs> so how does, how does that fit in? Yeah, here. I guess what is your job as an engineer, and yeah. or, or or how does that work? I don't know. Well, I'll explain the things I did today, um, and it's kind of blunt and it sounds rude, but of the 120 people that work at the coal mine, I'm the only one that's got a four-year degree, and so I'm I'm the only one that they trust to be able to read documents, to read contracts, and make sure that they look up to par, and they're the only one. I'm the only one that they trust to. Uh, deal with with legal people to deal with the the people that work for the state of Utah the people that deal with uh, uh, Government regulations they trust me to to be well spoken enough and well read enough and well written enough to do things according to their Specifications so that we don't uh, fall short of what they need even though you've had no law training at all Yeah, just on the job law training right. dealing with lawyers for the last 10 years um, Yeah, so do you see your job as kind of a translator like you translate from engineer speak to lawyer speak or something like that yeah yeah that's a good way to put it um, because I have enough technical background um, I can I can take what the miners are trying to express and put it into the kind of framework that regulators can understand and lawyers can understand and and insurance people can understand so you kind of have to be fluent in both languages so yeah to yeah I think that sums it up really well is is just basic fluency and and all different ways of talking to people. Yeah. Engineers don't talk like lawyers and vice versa. Generally not. There are some. I mean, there are some pretty good uh, patent engineers. Uh, patent lawyers generally have an engineering background. So, so, yeah, they would do a good job of this too. But I think, yeah, like I said before, it's, it's basically that having gone to school, having taken a bunch of uh, writing classes, that qualifies me to deal with the outside world in a professional way. Whereas if, um, if I hadn't gone to school they wouldn't trust me to do that kind of writing. So as an engineer, do you feel like that trained you to be able to like, cause it sounds like what, a lot of what you do is coordination, right? Is like putting the right things in the right place. Yeah. Do you feel like your engineering training prepared you for that too? Yeah, but I should mention, there's also a lot of real engineering going on too. Just not today. You know, yesterday I was calculating airflows through the mine and making sure all that was up to, 
snuff regarding pressures and volumes and so and the day before that I was looking at geology in particular um, then so for your day-to-day -day engineering stuff what does writing look like are there forms to fill out is it memos is it kind of free form do you have to make up the structure for how you write things or how does that work yeah that last one we generally make up our own forms so um so, so for example we're interested to know if we have enough airflow through the mine that's an important thing in mining is, is sufficient air uh to ventilate the gases and the dust and all that kind of stuff and so um, we have ways to monitor the parameters around the airflow daily um, but it's up to me to make the form so that the other people inspecting and myself can all have a, a uniform um, method of measuring quantity, measuring pressure. We measure voltage on the fan, we measure hertz on the fan. Um, all of that goes into the calculations that we're going to do. So, so that's the calculating part, but to gather that information it is a pretty standard set form that we follow. Um, but it was up to me to make up that form to, to make sure it captured everything that, that we needed on that. And sometimes we even get printed official little notebooks, little notepads, so they can just carry the notepad, fill it out, rip off the top sheet, hand it in, do the same thing the next day. And then all that gets entered into like a big spreadsheet? Yeah, a big spreadsheet, big and database. Is that spreadsheet... Um I guess it's like collaborative, like anybody can sign into it, or how many people have access to that spreadsheet, or how does that work? Uh, just me for now. I mean, if we had a bigger engineering team, I'm sure we'd share, but uh, I get all the hard copy papers, and then I put them in and, and, uh, and work it myself. Okay, so then you got that, the document of the, the form they fill out, then the spreadsheet, and then from there, what does the document look like? So an executive summary. Let's say you're going to write something up about that. Like, what is that document going to look like? Or who asks for that document first, and then when it comes time to write it, what do you what do you do? So the people who look at my work, I guess that's maybe the question: Who is my audience? My audience is uh, the general mine manager at the mine, and he's uh, you know he was a coal miner for 30 years and, and worked his way up through the ranks to become the general manager, but doesn't have engineering background, doesn't have technical background. The other person I report to and write to often is the head of engineering services for the whole nationwide company. Um, our company also has mines in West Virginia and Kentucky and Pennsylvania. And over the whole corporate umbrella, within the whole corporate umbrella, uh, we have a technical services vice president. And he is a professional engineer. So I'm also writing to him. Uh, so the same document is going to all those different people or these are yeah. different different kinds? Uh, sometimes different, sometimes the same. Uh, if it's a if it's a local decision, then it'll just go to our local guy. But if it's a bigger decision, then it's nice to have a professional engineer also look over my work, make sure it looks reasonable, and and agree or disagree or whatever. But come to a, a a final decision to be made on behalf of the company. Okay, so you um, you have data, you kind of I don't know crunch those numbers. I yeah. guess yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can kind of. There's a lot of work that could be called crunching numbers, I guess. Right. But, um, so you have answers to questions or, or something like that, and then you write that up, mm -hmm. right? So give me kind of, what does that look like? Paragraphs, you know, you know, or, or how to, yeah, just yeah. give me a description of that document. Yeah, a really good example of, of how we do this is how wide we need to make our pillars, they're called, the amount of coal that we leave in the ground to hold the mountain up depends on how strong the coal is and how much mountain there is above us and a whole bunch of other factors involved. So once I've crunched all those numbers, 
I write a, it's a two-page uh, summary, basically, seven to 12 paragraphs, and a table at the bottom that says you need to leave these ones 85 feet, you need to leave these ones 127 feet, you need to leave this much space in between them, and, and so that's all on the table, and then the seven to 12 paragraphs is the justification for why. So they're not real long, not real long write-ups, but, uh, but enough to, to make sure everybody knows the reasoning for what I came up with. Okay, so I'm imagining in my mind that it looks like, does each pillar have a, like a number or a name or something like that? Uh, more than, I mean, we number them eventually, but, but it's an entire district that will okay. just say this is the 4th North District that is gonna, needs to be shaped like this with these dimensions for this length and that width and whatever. And then a lot of that is giving the, da- the data of here's the qualities of the coal that's there, yeah. here's the amount of mountain above it. And like, yeah. So you're given just the raw data as the justification. And then at the end, you have like a, a summary that says, and so therefore, here's the... Okay. Yeah, do this. Okay. And an important part of this, I guess I should mention from an engineering point of view, is that we also calculate the safety factor. And so that's always, that's always the biggest, that's the front and center. You know, according to my calculations, we have a safety factor of 2.5 or 7.5 or whatever it ends up being. So there's just some formula that you put in to get that number. Right. right. Okay. And that's really what the decision makers are looking for. They're saying, all right, if we follow the numbers that you prescribe, we have a high enough safety factor. I like it. Let's do it. Okay. So that's one of the main things that they're looking for. So right. if they open up the thing, that's the first thing they're going to look for probably. Right. And then maybe be, maybe go back and read all the rest of it. Yeah. And they'll, they'll, yeah, if they're worried about the economics, if I've made it so big that it's going to cost more to do or something like that, then they'll look through my justification and maybe look for ways that they can save some cost and still maintain a good safety factor. Okay. So occasionally it'll, it'll iterate a few times like that. And I leave it pretty simple because... The decision makers generally don't want to read a big, long 20-page paper. They just want the, the two-paragraph summary of why it's important, how much it's going to cost, and, and what we need to do specifically. But they know that I'm e- economically minded and I'm trying to, to do it right the first time so I don't have to iterate it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So the, the kind of um, back and forth is they want to dig out as much coal as possible. Correct. And you want to... Make sure it's safe. <laughs> right, keep your workers as safe as possible. And there is a balance, right? And if I get too far on one side, they'll correct me on it. And if I get too far on the other side, the government will correct me on it. They're also in charge of making sure our plans are safe. So uh, it's known as MSHA, the Mining Safety and Health Administration. They check all of my work as well. Okay. And so, yeah. Uh, occasionally I, I iterate with them too. They think that I'm cutting it too close or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we go back and forth a few times and get it dialed in just right. So then, um, <clears throat> what's like the timeline process then? So, um, this is long time before you even dig into that part of the, of the mountain that you've planned this out or is it like, so, so, so yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. yeah so, and that's an important part of my job as well is is I'm the only person at the mine really in charge of looking at five years out ahead, two years out ahead, six months out ahead. Um, the mine manager does and doesn't sometimes, but uh, he's supposed to also look out ahead. Um, but he just thinks that's Joe's job. And he's a lot of times they defer to the engineer. Well, they'll take care of that. So, um, yeah, so a lot of my plans are a year in advance or six months in advance. That's usually where I start doing my calculations. The trick being that plans change within six months and so sometimes a lot of my work has been in vain because now we've changed directions and I have to recalculate everything. That happens, but yeah, I try to be about six months to a year ahead. So then you write your initial report based on the data you have, you send it to them, 
mm-hmm. um, then they'll you know say, well, hey, is there a way we can tweak this or tweak tweak that. this or tweak that? They send it back, and then so and then it goes to M Shaw. M Shaw. Okay, so it goes to your bosses first, back to you, then M Shaw. They say that's okay, and then you move on. Yep, and then that's the plan that's the plan and we try to stick to that and then so in the meantime i'm moving on to the next thing that we're going to do and and they go ahead and mine construct what it is that we've planned huh joe also told me that they sometimes take the information they found and write it up for publication in journals that specialize in coal mining engineering i haven't done this lately but sometimes the the engineers and the geologists of the mine have the freedom to write papers based on what they've learned if we've taken the time and effort to discover something that helps miners to be more safe is worth sharing to the rest of the world. So lately, I've only been doing it for ourselves. I haven't had the time to put it into a big, professional, organized, peer-reviewed paper mm-hmm. and, and get it published. Someday I'll probably get to that, maybe not. Maybe someone else will get around to publishing their version of it first. I also asked Joe what his relationship with writing was like in college. Yeah, I hated writing in college. I hated writing in high school. I thought, I'm going to be an engineer so I don't have to write much. And then I became an engineer and realized I was wrong in that assumption. And I tell my kids that too, because my oldest son hates writing. And he's probably going to be an engineer. And I say, man, just learn to embrace it. Learn to embrace precision of language. Learn to embrace clarity. And, uh, but keep writing. Keep writing. You'll do it. Uh, yeah, you have to do it. You can't be a successful engineer or a scientist without the ability to communicate what you know to others. I mean, I guess you could live in a log cabin in the woods by yourself and engineer the thing perfectly, and you didn't have to write anybody about it. But, yeah, by and large, the rest of the world is going to require that you write and tell them what you're doing, what you're thinking, and what they need to know. Next question, my phone keeps turning off, was where and when do you write? So, like, the nuts and bolts of your writing is it just microsoft word is it yep on your office yeah microsoft <laughs> word and excel spreadsheets uh those are the bread and butter occasionally we'll need to present um big if it's a big project a big capital expenditure we'll need to present it to corporate officers in kentucky and so then i'll make a, a powerpoint presentation with a little more graphics and a little easier to read you know um and those are for audiences who are even less engineering savvy yep uh less technically aware and also um just further away from the situation so they don't know all the details that we deal with day in and day out and and so yeah i mean that's a critical thing and that's a class i took in graduate school was how to present technical information and the first thing we discussed was was know your audience and write to your audience present to your audience so yeah so so the kind of presentations i do does it depends greatly on the audience that i'm looking at whether it's the corporate bosses or the local bosses or the regulators, or we'll have a, a meeting with the Society of Mining Engineers, and I'll present to them sometimes. And, and, and all of those audiences are different, and so obviously my style of writing and the style of presentation is different for yeah. each of them. Yeah, because um, I think all of them just assume that your calculations are correct or whatever and like that like they don't they don't care about that part of the process they want it as easy to understand as possible right except the engineers when you meet with engineers they'll they'll double check your math for you mm-hmm. in, during the presentation so you have to be spot on there 
but most everyone else will say, yeah, he's an engineer, he's done it right, he's already checked it, I don't need to double check his work. And they're probably bored and they don't want to hear that. And they don't want to hear the numbers anyway, except for how much it's going to cost and how much they're going to make by doing it. Right. <laughs> they like those numbers, but the rest of it, you know, how much strain and how much stress and how much dilation's occurring, yeah, I don't care about any of that stuff. Hmm. Yeah. So um, then how do, you, how do you do that? What's your, what's your process in your mind for... Um, I guess translating, we'll go back to that word, translating these like spreadsheets of just hard data into words that are going to be understood by people. Uh, yeah, I guess I've never really thought about how I do that, but I suppose I just try to channel what I would want to hear if I was a, uh, a financial guy, a CFO of a company. What would I want the engineer to be telling me? You know, what kind of details would I want? What kind of details would I not want? And so I try to get in that mind frame and then start putting it on paper. And it takes a few drafts. I, I find that I put way too much technical stuff in there. And, and after reading through, I think, ah, no, they don't want that. No, they don't want that either. Pair it way down. Yeah. And, and so who do you have to kind of correct you that way? Is it just you? Generally me. There's a couple other guys on our staff that aren't uh, engineers. And so if I, I give it to them to read through, and if they can understand most of it, then I think I've got it where I want it. You have some kind of test subjects, I guess, where you could... <laughs> yeah, hey, read this over and tell me if it makes sense. And if they say it makes sense, then it, I've probably got it where I want it. Yeah, I really like that idea of... Um, I call it method writing. It's like method acting. You kind of like yeah. pretend you're the other person. Yeah. yeah, so I can pretend I'm my dad. My dad managed a lot of big projects at the Salt Lake International Airport. He's a project manager. But no engineering expertise, no geology expertise. And so I figure if my dad could understand it and know what I'm talking about, that's probably the audience that I'm shooting for. Because those people are probably like really busy, have lots and lots of decisions to make, and they want all the right information to make that decision as easy as possible to make, right? Is that? Yeah, exactly. And 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 we're free enough with communication that if there's something lacking, they can always ask, "Hey, well, why don't you fill in this for me? Because I'm not sure how you came to that conclusion." Mm -hmm. And and so I'm happy to do it, but I don't throw everything out there to let them sift through. I throw out the bare bones minimum and then they can ask me for more details as needed. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so here's this one. Can you think of a time when uh, either your writing caused a misunderstanding or a failure to communicate through writing led to problems? Oh, yeah. We had a good one the other day. I was trying to remember what it was, but I can't think of it right now. I'll have to think of that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, or, typi I, or typically, yeah. where, do, where does uh, frustration happen? Yeah, so just, yeah, it was. I'm remembering now, and and it gets a little technical regarding mining, but um, um, we're, we're trying to mine this tunnel through and break it through in a particular spot on the far side. And we did all the surveying, we did everything, all the measurements and all the planning and got it all right and left for the day. And then the night crew came in, and, and normally they don't mine during the night crew, but this particular day, because of breakdowns earlier in the day, Somebody said, yeah, you guys go ahead and mine this. But we hadn't communicated with them the new plan because we weren't expecting them to mine. And they, so they didn't know that we had changed the direction they were supposed to go. And they went the old direction and it made a big mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just that little lack of communication, that little gap in what we knew, but they didn't know. But we didn't know that they needed to know it. Uh, yeah, cause us a little grief. Yeah, so how does, then, what's the protocol for transferring information, I guess, to make sure people have the right information at the right time? Yeah, sometimes not working right. But the, the, the protocol that we're supposed to use is as an engineering group, we, um, 
we communicate with the mine manager and say, this is what we've done, this is what they need to do. And then he communicates with the different construction crews. Okay, this is what we just learned today, so this is what you guys have to do today. But it was his day off. He'd taken the day off for sick day or something, and, and so we just missed. It, sure. it just didn't work the way it was supposed to. Yeah. So um, aside from just like, that just seems kind of, it's like a physical thing, right? That like mm -hmm. the information just didn't transfer from one place to yeah. another. So I'm more interested in like a, a situation where somebody did get the information and it's still something happened or, or, or where are places where um, just because of the way things are written or because of yeah where do or, or, or maybe if i yeah if i wrote something that just wasn't properly understood and so people kind of went go in the wrong direction yeah um yeah i'm sure that has happened but nothing's really coming to mind right away i might have to think about that it seems like you make a lot of um provisions to make sure that doesn't happen to be as precise in your language yeah as precise in your measurements as possible to to avoid that yeah and i do i do take a real effort in uh communicating it and then having them tell it back to me no what now so let me make sure you understand what i'm thinking you need to be doing here mm. um i learned that a long time ago uh in our scoutmaster he said you know when you give instructions you got to make sure they say it back to you so that it's it's you know that it's been received the right way and you know like, like most scouts ignore their scoutmasters during the scouting years but later in life um i realized man that's super important at the mine and even in my family i mean it's everywhere uh, you know, send the kid to the grocery store to get something. No, no. What did I tell you to get? Uh -huh. um, so, so if you can hear them say it back to you, then you know that there's direct communication. Yeah, you know that it's it's made its way through, and so so I've been making a point to do that at the mine, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and and then just even outside of our own mine, if I'm dealing with contractors or or projects, uh, you know, I follow up with an email. So as per our conversation today, this is what we discussed. Is there anything else that you remember talking about that I didn't get captured here? Um, again, just to make sure that, that we are clear on, on what has happened. That, yeah, there's been endless, countless. Uh, yeah, now that I'm starting to open that floodgate of, <laughs> of miscommunications, <laughs> things gone bad. Yeah, there's been a lot of those. Yeah. Yeah. Anything in particular that you could say without getting yourself or somebody else in trouble? No, well, <clears throat> a, a really good example. A few years ago... Um, I was a, an exploration geologist, a, con, a consultant, a private consultant, running my own business. And they had me running a big project in the country of Greenland, far to the north, wilderness country. And, and, and so challenge number one is the Arctic. Challenge number two is wilderness. You're, you are hundreds of miles from any civilization. Challenge number three is that they speak Danish or, or Greenlandic and I don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you've got three different languages that you're dealing with as well. And and so needless to say, there was a lot of miscommunication just because of that, because of distances, because we couldn't just shoot them a quick text or a quick email to verify that they got the message. And yeah, for the longest time I heard the word hoptalopter and I thought it meant um, uh, helicopter in Danish. And in fact, it, it meant the call symbols of, of his particular helicopter. I mean, I was just, I was out there, man. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was tough. So how much work do you do, uh, internationally then? Uh, not so much anymore. Um, it, it was big in 2011 through 2014, but it's, it's cooled off quite a bit. I still look around if there, you know, if there are more international opportunities, I'd probably jump on them, but 
did it, does it change the way you write when you know you have uh, someone who's uh, like English as a second language? Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I end up probably writing five or six drafts instead of just two or three drafts because, again, I try to channel myself. I, I, I speak a second language. I speak Spanish fluently, and I remember the difficulty in learning Spanish. And I also remember that if it's not your native language, it, it gets a little bit harder. And and so for these guys that don't speak English, I understand that it's, it's a little bit trickier. So... So I do. I, I'll take the time to put in the, in extra drafts, and make sure that each sentence is as clear as it can be. You know, in English we get used to just saying it, and everyone understands us. Uh, but if I go back and read it real careful, I can see, oh well, he could take this two different ways. I better make sure I narrow that down that there's only one way he can take this sentence. So it comes back to that idea of empathy and putting yourself in your audience's shoes. Yeah, and... yeah, definitely, definitely. And as a rule of thumb, by the way, this is kind of a side note. I will never, ever make fun of the way somebody speaks English if it's not their native language. I used to be kind of a, a snide kid and make fun of people's accents. But since I learned a second language, I have learned I will never make fun of anybody trying to learn a second language. Man, that's tough. Especially English. English is an awful language. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah these guys learn all their English by watching TV. And so it sounds a lot like um, Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. And so it's funny. And there really is some room to make a lot of fun of it. But I won't. I, I never do because I, I respect the effort that they made to learn English. Right. So I want to get back to the idea of um, precision in mm-hmm. language. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure my students are going to be familiar with the difference between accuracy and precision and That's good. and all that kind of stuff. That's good. Um, hopefully. Maybe we'll have a lesson on that. But um, what do you do in special with your language to be as precise as possible? Um, as I reread the things I've written and, and go back over my drafts, I maybe try to take the devil's advocate of, of reading a sentence and saying, how many, could I, could I take this the wrong way? Would it be possible to uh, interpret this as meaning something else? Um, was I precise enough to, to rule out any other meaning except the one that I wanted? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I do put a lot of effort into, into that. Um, precision of language, I guess. How much, um, cause I guess there's a lot of jargon, right? Because when engineers talk with engineers, like they know what dilation means yeah. or, or something like that. So do you feel like you kind of have to not use that word and then right. like explain what that means sometimes? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I'll, I'll define words that I'm using if that word has to be in there for part of the thing, but maybe isn't a common phrase that common knowledge. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and put a little definition of what I mean by that and why it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, do you yeah. feel like that changes how you talk even like to your children or to people like in your, in your life? Yeah, I try. Again, I try to be precise with my kids, but, um, yeah, it's, it's not always perfect, but, um, yeah, a long time ago I read that book, The Giver. It's kind of a popular book and, and man, they harp that precision of language, precision of language. And, and ever since then, I've tried to remember that precision of language, to try to be good with my language. Hmm. And especially, I think, coming from having learned a second language as well, you learn uh, different ways of expressing the same thing uh, in a different language. And it really makes you focus back on English. Oh, somebody not familiar with English could take this two different ways. So I, better, I better lock that down a little tighter. I better be sure I get that right. How much do you write instructions to other people? Uh, a bit. Uh, yeah, once every six months, a year, something like that. I mean, I have to lay out um, a big protocol. A good example was this thing we were doing up in Greenland. Uh, I also had a team of geologists that were out 
prospecting for coal. And so it was my job to write the entire protocol for them so that I could turn them loose in the wilderness and not be holding their hands, and yet they would collect the data that I needed collected. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that took uh, three weeks or something to put together the official protocol, read through it, make some changes, read through it, have my wife look through it, make some changes, uh, to make sure that that specific protocol for sampling was, was clear enough that whoever got this document could do it without making mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's one of the harder things that I've tried. Even like recipes, you read recipe books and... There's a lot of guesswork. Yeah. If it's not well written. There's some recipes that are really precise. Yeah. And in fact, there's a joke, there's a mining engineering joke that they should have mining engineers write these recipe books because no one would mess it up if an engineer was writing the recipe book. Right. <laughs> they would be so conscious about being precise with their language, it would be done right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay, one more question I just thought of. Um, where does creativity come in to your job? Or maybe like like an artfulness or something like that. Do you ever feel like that? Or does it feel just like all data, all precise, all the time? Uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of creativity in, in what I get to do. Um, not in the writing part of it, which I think is an important thing. I, I did have a supervisor who was, a, she was a geologist, I think, and she was really, really creative with her writing and it drove everybody nuts and nobody liked it. Nobody liked it at all because it left too much ambiguity, left too much space for wondering what the heck she was thinking. So yeah, no creativity in writing, but creativity in problem solving for sure. Um, and that's where scientists and engineers sometimes disagree. Sometimes engineers think that no, there's one recipe and you follow it precisely and get the job done correctly. And in a lot of cases they're right. You know, if you're building a bridge, you don't want a lot of creativity in how you go to build a bridge. But there is a lot of creativity in the design phase where you look at something and say, well, actually our particular case doesn't fit anything that anyone's ever done before. So let's put our best science behind it. Let's put our best math behind it. And let's see if, uh, if we can create a new solution to something that's never been done before. Yeah. All right. I think that's going to do it. <laughs>